Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we continue our conversation on Final Fantasy VII. When last we left our heroes, particularly Cloud and Aerith, they were settling in for the night. Aerith had made a bed and gone to bed. Cloud was remarking on the comfy homeliness of the situation he was in, but he had also been asked by a woman introduced as Elmira, but nothing else. Uh, She had asked him to leave in the middle of the night so that Aerith won't get her feelings hurt again. Right, and I thought this was, the, the first time we played this, I recall thinking, and like almost every time I play this game, I have to like remind myself who this person is, because I thought she was like uh, being a helpful roommate. I thought she was Aerith's contemporary. Uh, Turns out that's not the case. And I had assumed that it was her mother, I think probably because that's the only relationship she's mentioned at this point. She mentioned that the materia she has that she claimed to be worthless, or not worthless, that it doesn't do anything. Doesn't do anything, right. Mm. Important distinction. That that it belonged to her mother. And so I think that's what I had assumed. I would guess that that's what most people would assume, but it's not actually told to us here. And we'll leave it at that for now. So, whether this is a dream or a memory that Cloud has as he's sitting in bed, again, I think purposefully ambiguous. Final Fantasy VII loves to play in this area. And we get a flashback, again, a ton of flashbacks in this story. And we see one of Cloud, presumably back home, because... The Again, oftentimes RPGs in the good old days would introduce a character based on the text that comes up in front of what they say. And this one just says, Mom. And she says, My, how you've grown. I'll bet the girls never leave you alone. And Cloud, presumably a, a much younger version, says, Not really. Yeah. Well, and, and we're going to have a discussion as we've hinted a couple times about uh cloud's sexuality i guess uh you know who who he is attracted to and i think this is part of that yeah i do too because i actually think there's a lot of different ways you can read this and i wish i had the name in front of me we'll give you a shout out on twitter when i can find it but remember when that person sent us their writing about how maybe that's right cloud was asexual and there have been theories over the years that maybe uh, cloud is homosexual or pansexual and i think there's actually evidence for all of that and again some of it gets back to you're kind of given a choice but i like the ambiguity particularly of this scene which is pointed out in that article because you can read not really the way I just did. Like, not really as though he's rejecting that. Actually, I don't get a lot of attention from the girls. Or him saying, not really, they don't leave me alone. I get so much attention from the girls. Hmm. Yeah, I suppose so. And the mom says, I worry. 
Lots of temptation in the city. I wish you'd settled down with a nice girlfriend. And Cloud says, I'm all right. Now, again, is he rejecting that because he has no interest in girls? Or is he rejecting that because he's interested in being a soldier and a mercenary and he's just in general not interested in love? Or is he just not interested in love right now? Or is he just not want to talk to his mom about it? <laughs> yeah, maybe he's just kind of embarrassed to talk to his mother about whatever relationships he is or is not having. There's also this interesting line where mom says, I think you need an older girlfriend, one that'll take care of you. Oh, okay. All right. So, so does that mean that mom thinks Cloud can't take care of himself? Is he... Or just that he needs maybe some uh, some support. He's one of those folks who doesn't do well on their own, which would be kind of ironic given that now he's a lone mercenary. I think it's a strong suggestion of that, yes, and a sign of how much he's going to need his friends to guide him through the trials to come. Uh, Cloud, though, responds to this with his catchphrase that has been used in movies and countless video games and spinoffs. Every time you see Cloud, at some point he's going to say, not interested. You know, I, I'd kind of forgotten how much Cloud and Squall are similar. I've been playing the Final Fantasy VIII Remaster and... As those of you who've played the game know... Squall as a catchphrase, too. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> They're very similar catchphrases, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting, because I don't think of them as really being all that much alike, but maybe I'm wrong on that. Or maybe their, their forward-facing selves, their facades, are, are maybe more like each other. Uh, but again, we've talked about Cloud's kind of that stoic dude, but he's also kind of not, so... It's interesting to see here him being so recalcitrant with his mother. It's also, this really is starting to open us up to Final Fantasy being in the romantic realm and talking about boyfriends and girlfriends and it being a little bit messier. You know, we've had romance in Final Fantasy before, certainly Cecil sure. and Rosa and plenty of stuff in Six, which is a little bit messier, but that tended to either not be fleshed out much or, or, or go anywhere or just be, you know, sort of the classic fantasy. And then they fell in love and were in love and got married and ruled over a kingdom or something like that. I think Locke and Celeste are, are the big example of the complicated, messy, interesting love story that, that plays out in front of us before we got to Seven. Right. And in, and in a way, in terms of dialogue, I don't know that that's ever even fully consummated, if I may use that word. Mm -hmm. It's very heavily implied how they feel about each other, but I'm not sure they, you know, would ever use words like boyfriend, girlfriend, any of that. You know, this is very teenagery, actually, which I think it's supposed to be. They're in their early 20s, so just past that. But yeah, just a different kind of romantic interaction between people. So Cloud either wakes up or comes out of this memory and decides, yeah, okay, I'm going to try to sneak out of here. It's actually one of those like weird random little mini games that's more difficult than it needs to be to try to sneak out around random <laughs> floorboards that will creak and Aerith will wake up and say, hey, quit. And you have to go back to bed and try I had to try it like eight times. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, but you eventually sneak out, you sneak down the stairs. So you sneak out, you sneak down the stairs, you're being very coy, you're being very quiet, you get to the front door and Aerith is standing there ready to go. <laughs> uh-huh. She's got her, her modified red mage outfit on, she's got her, her staff. Can't get nothing past this girl, I swear. Very clever. <laughs> she's ready for it. She's like, all right, let's go. <laughs> Cloud realizes nothing I can do. Let's head back to Sector 7. Earth's coming along. But to do that, you've got to go through Sector 6. There are a couple of you know, NPCs you can stop and talk to, of course. There was one I found that was really interesting, a guy who says, don't trust Shinra or Avalanche. It all comes down to wanting to live like the people up there. So what do I believe in? Myself. Me. I never lie to myself, that's for sure. And it just shows this level of paranoia in this world and the sort of success of equalizing Shinra and Avalanche and what it would do to somebody who wouldn't know any better. Sure, if all you see of Avalanche is the blowing up the reactors, if you don't necessarily know about the nature of the planet and the nature of Mako energy, maybe they might just seem like two sides of the same coin and the only logical option then to live a life of safety would be to accrue enough wealth to live where the rich people live. Right. Uh, there's also a shop you can go into with a freezer and if you go up and open it, the shopkeeper will say, didn't your mother ever teach you not to barge into people's houses and open freezers? Which I think is a really funny comment on role-playing games. I Actually, I was raised by role-playing games, and it is incumbent upon me to walk into everybody's house without permission and go through all their things and take the potions. Otherwise, I'm not doing the right job. <laughs> That's right. This is how I save the world. So as you continue on your way, you cross this weird-ass playground? That's how I've written yeah. it in my notes. Um, it really is stunning to look at and weird. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's in the middle of, like, this industrial park. There's, like, rusted beams, and they're all fallen. There's, like, a lot of sharp objects that you wouldn't necessarily want kids around, but it is sort of fenced off, right? Like, there's right. a couple of stone pillars as the gate, and there's some chain-link fence. And there's a swing set, which is perfectly fine and normal great and there's appears to be a sort of a sandbox though those were always kind of dubious in my opinion sure and then there are the there's a slide yeah with like the face of a weird cat critter yeah it sort of looks like it's meant to be a sort of a playful cartoon cat thing and you climb up the ladder on the side and you go inside this dome thing that's got a cat ears and a cat mouth and then the the slide is like its tongue yeah i think it's meant to be cute in the way that cereal mascots can be cute even though really like if i'm eating my cheerios and a giant bee comes up to me (laughs) like i'm not going to be okay with that experience right and i do think there's something purposefully off-putting about it i've seen a lot of these kinds of shapes in uh, a lot of anime in uh, a darker and darker tone, particularly Dead Man Wonderland has an aesthetic that 
I think of when I, I see this scene. But yeah, it's sort of haunting and beautiful at the same time. And that's what they're going for. And Aerith, speaking of the, the slide that you just described, says it's still here. Yeah. So, okay, yeah. she's been here before. She climbs the top. Of course, Cloud follows and sits next to her. And she wants to know, so in Soldier, what rank were you? Mm-hmm. And there's a bright flash on the screen. That's it, just one moment of white flash. And then Cloud says, first class. Again, hints. Right. Something is up with that. Speaking of hints, Aerith says, just the same as him. And she, she look, she wriggled out of this conversation once before, so Cloud asks again, who? And Aerith very directly says, my first boyfriend. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah it uh, yeah okay <clears throat> so on the one hand because they've they've had this little adventure together and they were kind of playful and they were kind of flirty it sort of seems like maybe she is interested in cloud and she wants to make sure he understands that she had a boyfriend before who also was in soldier and also was first class. On the other hand, knowing that, you know, as players, knowing that Cloud is having some memory issues, it almost feels like maybe Aerith is asking some leading questions. So it it could be, you know, like we've talked about before, a lot of what is said to Cloud and about Cloud could have double meaning. And so maybe, maybe she's trying to understand him more She's trying to understand Cloud more because he so closely parallels her first boyfriend. I think it's all of that. It's just so well done. Now, if you have played Crisis Core before this, now if you played the rest of the game, this obviously has deeper meaning because we'll come to learn about this boyfriend and and he's very important to everything that's gone on with the story even though we won't really know who he is for a while, the Crisis Core game is all about him. And spoiler, spoilers, skip ahead a few minutes if you don't want it, but the way she meets Cloud, and this is what you were just referencing here, is very similar, almost exactly the same as the way she meets Zack, and they, they look very similar. And so... While we don't know it, it's a very Marla Singer from Fight Club situation where when you go back and you know the full story, you realize that Aerith knows more than she's letting on and that she is a little bit weirded out by the fact that Cloud happens to have all of these parallels with this boyfriend who, again, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, just never came home one day. Right, so she her, her caution here is warranted, even if it feels to us like, at this point, like maybe she's being too coy. It absolutely makes sense for her to trust him because he was very sweet to her, he protected her, they, had, they went on this adventure together, so it makes sense. But also, as Elmira, Aerith's mom, said, you know, she's been hurt before. 
So it, it makes sense for her to be cautious and knowing what we know, having played the game and you having played Crisis Core, like this is a lot weirder than it seems on the surface. Right. As is this little exchange. Cloud says, were you serious? And Aerith responds, now don't get upset, Crisis Core fans. Uh-huh. She says, no. Don't. It's fine. She says, but I liked him for a while. And then Cloud says, what was his name? And Aerith says, it doesn't really matter. Oh, but it does. It, it does, does matter so much. It really does. Classic writing, though. Good stuff. Yeah, I mean, she's protecting herself here, right? Yeah. She, you know, it it still hurts. When you lose somebody, it hurts, uh, no matter how you lose them. And so, yeah, she, it like, that's that makes perfect sense as a response. It doesn't really matter. What that means is, I'd kind of like to not think about it. It's going to be hard because you look like him and you have his sword. But let's let's not go there just this moment. Right. Uh, and then they're interrupted by a chocobo carriage that appears in the background. A very fancy-looking chocobo carriage. And as it turns the corner, you see Tifa in a strange dress. You mentioned before how sort of jolting it was to see her in the flashback in the cowboy outfit. Now it's jolting because we see Tifa, but it's in this fancy blue dress instead of her normal fighting and bartending gear. Yeah, that, like if I were writing this story, if this were my novel, that would feel like a an, a sharp turn to take. Like this feels like a an awkward transition. Like, we need to get to Tifa's story now because we got to get the band back together. How do we get Tifa, you know, how do, how do we get back to Tifa? Oh, I know. Let's have her kidnapped and put in a fancy dress. Like, and, and we just happen to see her. Okay, I guess. Sure, why not? Yeah, I, I guess I'm not sure how you would all get them to the next place that they're going. Uh, so, so, if you, I mean, there, there would be ways, I mean, you would, could rewrite sections of the scene if you wanted to do it differently obviously i don't dislike it necessarily it's just very convenient yeah there there's some highly convenient coincidental things that are coming up actually uh so nonetheless coincidentally or not <laughs> there there is tifa and cloud you know it looks like she's in trouble i gotta go run after her Aerith. You head on home. <laughs> She's like, yeah, Dude, we're doing we the Final have, Fantasy IV thing again. Had this fight, uh, <laughs> yeah, and and it's very. She just, as if he didn't even say it. She just says, "Hey, uh, they're headed over there into Sector Six. That place can be really scary, especially for a girl." I'm coming with you, Aerith and Cloud. Follow after Tifa into one of the toughest grossest, rotten places in all of video game history. Yeah, and, and I think it might be, uh, certainly I am tempted to say, but not for a girl like Tifa, right? Because Tifa's a badass. But you know what? Being assaulted, being kidnapped, being harassed, even for the toughest, most confident of people, can be a traumatic experience. And, and to say that she... Sh for, you know, for me to suggest that Tifa Lockhart should be too strong to get kidnapped is, is unfair, I think, because plenty of people, 
who are, are plenty strong have been harassed or touched when they didn't want to be or, or put in a position where they were made to feel powerless. You know, even big physically strong people or charismatically strong people have been put into bad situations that were not their fault and they did the best they could. But even then, you know, it's sometimes it happens. And so, you know, I want to take myself down a peg or two here for at least at that age, thinking that Tifa should have been able to just handle this on her own. So you arrive on Wall Market, hmm. a wretched hive of scum and villainy. Does that strike you as a, a deliberate parallel to... Uh... Yeah. Okay. It's not especially subtle. Right. I do think it's interesting, though, that they take a, what is considered a very fancy and upscale real-world place and choose to depict it as this underbelly of slime. But I don't think that that's an accident at all. Sure, sure. And I think one of the comments that drives that home is one of the first things you can do is head a couple of screens to the right and find Don Corneo's, not mansion, that's up at the top of the town, but his brothel. It's They don't right. use the word. There are a lot of characters standing around who use subtle lines of dialogue to make it clear what's going on in there. Mm-hmm. They refer to Don Corneo as a famous dilettante in the market for a bride. And this place has some of the most advanced technology we've seen yet. We've mostly been surrounded by dirt and scraps of metal in the slums. Uh, But these guys got like holograms and giant signs. Again, it's a lot of that cyberpunk sort of Blade Runner style of big advertisements and in-your-face Las Vegas-style capitalism. So, Aerith and Cloud, being relatively smart people, figure out, okay, this Don Corneo person has probably kidnapped Tifa, is going to force her to maybe become his bride, and so we got to find a way to sneak in there. Aerith's going, all right, I'm going in. I'm just going to walk in there. You know, I'm a girl. They'll let me in. I'll sneak in. I'll sneak her out. And Cloud's going, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> yeah, let's, you know. Let's, let's be smart about this one. Yeah. And so he also decides that just busting in is going to cause way too much commotion. And so Aerith starts laughing uncontrollably. <laughs> because... Uh-huh. If she's going in there and Cloud's not letting her go in by herself, there seems to be one solution to this. Yeah, yeah, because they're not going to let a dude with a giant sword on his back go in. we got to be incognito. So she says, why don't you dress up like a girl? Then, without really giving Cloud much of a chance to answer, she turns around to the guard at the front of 
Don Corneo's mansion. She, she says, uh, just wait, I've got a cute friend I want to bring. Yeah, yeah. And we've alluded to this event a few times in other episodes. And, and here I think we're going to get a chance to really delve into why it is interesting and important. Yeah, I'm going to, first of all, disappoint some people by skipping over some of the details, as fun as they are, and as much as I hope they get super fleshed out in the remake, and it looks like they're going to be, uh, I'll just quickly say, you know, there are a lot of little mini games here where you have to go around Sector 6 and find all of these items so that you can cross-dress with Cloud. Uh, You got to get a dress and some perfume and you can find some special underwear. That's the super secret hidden item. You don't have to do all of it. Uh, It will impact a thing that happens later, but it's sort of this famous and endearing scene in many ways. I think one of the reasons being that cloud in doing this actually helps save the family business of the people that make the dress for him. Right. Because the dressmaker says that he had lost all inspiration and then he felt like everything he was making was the same. But actually making a women's dress specifically for a man was a good creative outlet for him and something he wanted to do. And, you know, there's there's some debate over all of this about whether or not, because much of this is played for laughs. Right. Whether we're laughing at a segment of the community that especially in 1997, we really didn't have a a wide, you know, nationwide or global understanding of. But I have to say, I was worried there were going to be some landmines as I was replaying this. And I felt like there was a lot more in here that was really positive. And there's a lot to be built on where Cloud puts up minimal fight, but more or less goes with it. Right. Yeah. Cloud... On the one hand, we're doing it to to sneak in, but on the other hand, he's not made terribly uncomfortable by it. And that, I mean, that might be just because he's kind of playing the stoic card, but it might just also be that he's confident in who he is. And it might be that, you know, for him, there's there's a meme going around right now that is all clothes are unisex if you're not a wimp about it, right? Like, Clothes don't have gender. There are we, we put certain uh, gendered expectations on certain kinds of clothes, but you can wear anything so long as it more or less fits. And maybe you know, Cloud. Maybe he just it doesn't he doesn't care that much about what he wears, uh, or maybe he's you know just comfortable with whatever he wears. And I think that's I think that's really interesting for for this kind of character who is so often seen as the stoic manly man, being okay with wearing what would be thought of as stereotypically feminine clothes and accessories and perfume. It also, we we talked a lot about Celeste having to be the military general Mm. and having to be hard all the time. Yeah, Uh, And she had to, you know, she had to show that, strong side of her all the time to survive in the empire and then to to be a successful military commander and then when she gets to perform in the opera that's almost like a cross-dressing moment right she's she's moving from uh one kind of battlefield as it were to another because art can be very demanding and being on stage and having a solo 
is extraordinarily stressful, but in a different way, right? But she, and, she, and she does it through, you know, she wins the day through song and drama in that case, and in wearing a dress, and again, wearing stereotypically feminine clothes and accessories, and presumably perfume and makeup and so on. And so Cloud's moment here parallels that in a way that I think is, is really fantastic. You know, I remember being a, a boy, and you know, I grew up, I was born in 81, so I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and I remember being the boy who was not manly enough for uh, a lot of my contemporaries. You know, I, I played some sports, but I was also the kid who liked to sit quietly and read or go home and play video games. And, you know, I, I liked playing baseball, and I liked running track, and I liked playing soccer, but I was never as good as. And so there were plenty of my contemporaries and even a few coaches uh, who thought I wasn't tough enough, strong enough, manly enough. So I remember the first time I was playing this part, I was made a little bit uncomfortable by cloud cross-dressing because boys don't wear dresses. And I remember being made uh, a little uncomfortable by some of the stuff in the Honey Bee Inn, which we'll get into. And I remember being made a little uncomfortable by men being attracted to men or men being attracted to men who looked like women. And I think that wasn't a product of how I was raised by my family, but it was a bit a product of how I was raised by growing up in the 80s and 90s. Because our society put a lot of emphasis on this, the distinction thereof. But on subsequent playthroughs, I really appreciated that there was an understanding here that to be a man could mean a lot of different things. That I didn't necessarily need to be the best at baseball so that my peers wouldn't make fun of me for, you know, never hitting a home run. I remember that was a big thing uh, yeah. for, for some of the teams, right? And so I appreciated that Cloud was willing to do this, but also that it wasn't a big deal to him that this is what we were doing, that it was okay, that it was positive even, to take the role in a different way, right? To just, to, to be somebody who is not worried uh, about wearing a dress or wearing perfume. And that actually made me feel better about the kind of man I was becoming and wanted to become. Uh, you know, someone, like I'm a high school librarian, right? I, I'm not lifting weights or... I don't know, what are other manly things? I'm, I'm not a mechanic. Uh, I live in western Colorado. I, I've ridden horses. I like to ride horses, but I'm not a cowboy, right? And it's fine if you are all those things or any of those things or some variation of those things. But the kind of man I want to be is the kind who is, you know, a little quieter, a little gentler. And I think in this moment, Cloud also gets to be that person. And I think that we have seen some of that in him in his flashbacks, Right. He's a little, maybe his mom wants uh, an older girlfriend for him to help take care of him because he is a little quieter. He is a little gentler. He sits on the top of the water tower with Tifa and looks at the stars. Maybe that's because he is a little quieter. He is a little gentler. And so seeing this side of him, you know, seeing the side of him where he flips off the train with the giant sword on his back is badass. But seeing him dressing up in a pretty dress, and, and nice accessories and the super secret special underwear <laughs> is is also badass. And I like that. I really, really like that. 
I do too. And I'll get into more of my very similar type of reasons when we get to a scene that you hinted at in there. And I'll actually plant the seed for it here as we get back into the plot. Because once he changes and comes out of the room, Aerith tells him, walk more nicely, Miss Cloud, calls him Miss Cloud. This actually reminded me of a story I want to get back to, oddly enough, of Boy Meets World uh, from when we were kids. Nice pull, yeah. An episode called Chick Like Me, in which the kids read the book Black Like Me Mm -hmm. and are inspired to get Sean, who's a little bit of a womanizer, to Mm -hmm. dress up as a girl and go on a date with somebody. And one of the first things they have him do is try to walk differently. That also reminds me of the movie Birdcage. Uh, Nathan Lane, Robin Williams, playing a a gay couple in Miami. Their their son has fallen in love with a young woman whose father, played by Gene Hackman, is an extraordinarily conservative senator. And so they decide what we have to do is trick him into thinking we're straight, which is kind of a shitty thing to do to your parents. (laughs) So Robin Williams' character is uh, a bit more manly and Nathan Lane's character is a bit more feminine. And they're trying to get Nathan Lane to behave more manly. And so, you know, they put him in a suit and tie and dark clothes. And they try to get him to walk like a man. All right, let's try walking. Holding the sandwich? Doesn't matter. Just walk. Too swishy? Robin Williams' character eventually says, Let me give you an image. It's a cliche, but it's an image. John Wayne. Oh, God. Couldn't we start with someone easier? Come on, you're a big fan. And he does. And, and he turns around and looks at you know, his husband and his son and says, No good. And Robin Williams says, No, it was perfect. <laughs> I just didn't realize John <laughs> Wayne walked, walked like that. that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. Uh, so Cloud and Aerith head off to the mansion it's all golds and reds, get very elaborate. Clearly a lot of money has gone into this place. They head on inside. The guy at the table there just says, oh, you must be here to see the dawn. Uh, you know, wait right here, I'll be right back. So of course you're like, oh, we're not gonna wait right here. We're gonna sneak around, see if we can find Tifa. You head down to the basement where, of course, there's an S&M table. Like, what in the sure. world? Remember in Final Fantasy VI when they had to censor the scene when the dancer comes up to right. make Cyan uncomfortable? Yep. Well, there's a straight-up S&M table. Now, I was young enough that I had no idea what it was the first time. I, yeah, I think I might have suspected, but, uh, you know, again, I like I said, some of this made me uncomfortable the first time I played. I think, not unlike Cloud, I decided not to think about it. Right. And I think in general, I knew it was sex stuff. Again, there's a lot of dialogue around this that hints at what's going on in here, but it's made very clear that this is a place where Don Corneo does this. And if it hadn't been driven home, this next bit of dialogue... It is funny to remember that this is where Tifa and Aerith meet is in the S&M dungeon. Right, right. And to be clear, like on the one hand, if everybody's in on it, you know, fine. But if Don Cornero is forcing people into it, that's super messed up and not at all appropriate. Exactly. But the thing that they seem to get hung up on right away is 
Aerith just wants to let Tifa know, hey, don't worry, me and Cloud just met. Nothing going on here. <laughs> right. like, I only asked him to to dress as prettily as I could. Right, right. <laughs> but nothing going on. Just dressed he him up. He's very he, pretty. He only reminds me of my boyfriend, and I asked him to dress up. Right, in special underwear. And yeah. so Tifa but nothing says, going on. Yeah, no, nothing going on. Nothing. And she's like, well, why are you clarifying that to me? We just grew up together. Nothing, nothing going on here either. And then Aerith has this great moment where she goes, poor Cloud, just having to sit here and listen to us call him nothing to us. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't get involved at all, again, right. allowing your ambiguous interpretation. And then uh, I love this moment, too, where Tifa has one question that we might all have right away. Why are you sure. dressed like that? Uh-huh. But she dismisses it immediately. Actually, that's not the most important thing. I haven't seen you since you fell from a scaffolding. You know, what happened? Are you okay? How did you survive? (laughs) Right. Cloud very quickly answers both of those questions. Hey, there was no other way to get in here. Also, I'm fine. Aerith helped me. Aw, he admitted he needed someone's help. Yeah. Um, Then Cloud turns the question back on her. What are you doing here? At this moment, I love this too from Aerith. She decides this might be a private moment between these two people. So she decides to walk to the other room and plug her ears. She says, uh-huh. I'll plug my ears. <laughs> but you can see as the conversation is going on, she keeps turning her head in their direction. <laughs> so great. <laughs> um, so Tifa explains that they apprehended somebody and they gave them the Don's name. They said that he's looking for a bride. Every day he gets three girls, chooses one of them, and then, well, anyway, I have to be the girl for tonight. All right. All right. So earlier, uh, I went on this minor rant about how we shouldn't try to, like, negatively judge people for having been uh, assaulted or kidnapped or or in some way harassed. But here it's shown that it is, in fact, on purpose. I think what I said earlier still stands. But at the same time, it's, it's kind of cool that, that this is a setup. Right. And, and there's plenty of other Final Fantasy characters who have been and will be kidnapped. And so it's worth right. making that point. But yeah, it turns out she's trying to be chosen as the girl because, well, she's probably got a better chance to, if she gets in there, you know, get some information out of this guy. Of course, Aerith goes, hey, sorry, I overheard. But, you know, if you've got three girls... You don't have to play the odds game here, right? That's right. And Cloud goes, Aerith, no. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, what? It's okay for Tifa to be doing secret uh-huh. stuff, but not me? I grew up in the slums, she says. You're like, oh, right. Right. She's at least as tough as the rest of us. Come on. Uh, then a... Creeper appears at the top of the stairs and says, it's time, ladies. No, no, no. He says, it's time, ladies. Right, right, right. And then before heading up, Tifa remarks, I wonder what Barrett would say if he could get a look at you, which is a phenomenal question. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It is. So we uh, have questioned Cloud's sexuality a bit. Do you want to question uh, Barrett's sexuality here? I mean, again, spoiler for later, but it is possible for the two of them to go on a date together. Right. 
and and not all dates need to necessarily be sexual and you can be uh, attracted to a, a wide variety of aspects of a person i think yeah I, I i do wonder what barrett would say i i wonder if he would have that same kind of reaction i might have had in the 90s where it's uh, more uncomfortable or if he would would not care or, or if he might even be into it who knows but we, we're not given much time to wonder because the group is brought in front of Don Corneo. The three ladies are lined up in front of him in a disgusting practice, which is real. Right. This feels a little bit, what, beauty pageant-esque? Yeah. So the Don, we're, we're finally introduced to him. He's as gross a figure as you would think. Blonde mohawk. He's slovenly overweight. He's got like red robes that are open so that his chest hair is spilling out. He's just gross. And to be clear, uh, Don Cornero's grossness is about his attitude and his consumption, I guess, is a way to put it. He, we, we talk a lot uh, about the haves and the have-nots in this game. And most of the haves uh, live up on the pizza, right? They live on the plates. And the have-nots are down here with us in the slums. So it's not that he's gross because he is overweight. It's gross because he has the hoard of money. He has the money in this district. And what does he do with it? He makes his mansion gold-plated. He exploits people. He could be doing a lot of good down here. And there's there's a lot to be said about the uh, the potential morals of of sex work uh, doesn't have to be exploitative, but it usually is. Uh, but he could be using what he earns to give back to this community, to make it a better place. And instead, like like he's overweight in, in a world where the, the people who are skinny down here aren't skinny because they're in shape. They're in skinny because they don't have anything. Right. right? They don't have enough money. They don't have enough food. They don't have enough resources. And he flaunts his wealth. He consumes his wealth, right? And then he, he takes these young ladies he finds and puts them in expensive dresses and he lines them up. And then, uh, at least metaphorically, he consumes them. Yeah. So as he's looking them over, uh, Cloud really avoids eye contact. And this is where if you've gotten all the special items, you can get him to choose Cloud. I did not in my playthrough. He chose Aerith. It's also kind of interesting because uh, Tifa's wearing a blue dress and Aerith is wearing a red dress and Cloud is wearing a purple dress. Oh, nice. Very nice. So in that event, uh, Cloud is taken to another room. There's this really gross line. Don Corneo says, you guys can have the rest of them. Oh, Ugh. gross. Ugh. Yeah. Um. And Cloud is put into this room where he's surrounded by a bunch of gross dudes who slowly start moving toward him, hands out, trying to grab him. And this is really disconcerting. Yes, it is. And, you know, I think like you were talking about earlier, this is one of those things that if you interpret it a certain way, it can be, you know, feel a little bit, like that, well, they don't know he's cross-dressing, so ha, 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 we got them. He's really a dude. But for me, I interpret it the other way to go back to my 
boy meets world example as cloud and maybe as a 12 year old boy i'm thinking this feels horrible no one should be treated this way and it's kind of like that moment in the episode of boy meets world where sean goes on the date and the guy tries to get a little bit handsy with him and it makes him obviously super uncomfortable and he goes wow you know a realization. And so we don't know that Cloud was a womanizer before this or not, but I think for him as the character and for us as the player, it's a really powerful and and palpable feeling of no one should ever be treated this way. And he, you know, kind of fights them off. He does eventually reveal that he's a man, which of course does freak them out, you know, and, and is that capital P problematic? Is that just the way, you know, these guys are obviously not heroes. We're not supposed to identify with them. You know, you you do eventually just fight them off uh, as cloud as you would, but sure is creepy. I like this too, that cloud, once he busts out of the room, he doesn't then need to go and save Tifa from whatever situation she's caught up in. She just shows up. She's taking care of it just the way he's taking care of his deal. You have the choice here to ask either, are you all right? Or just say, let's go and help Aerith. I always check on the person who's right there. So I asked if she was okay. She says, of course, if you're going to take me lightly, you're going to pay for it. (laughs) You're darn right. Uh, And they burst in so that the three of them can interrogate Don Corneo. Yes. Oh, yes. I love this scene. Get him. Get him. Uh, So he's being, you know, real gross and creepy on the bed, pelvic thrusting at Aerith and all of that. And Tifa and Cloud bust in. He's taken aback. He falls back on the bed. The three of them line up. This is a totally different lineup. <laughs> totally, yeah. You know what? You're right. That's a great point. They're they're lined up, but it's <laughs> in a much more aggressive tone. And they each ask a question that comes with an ultimatum. And as they yeah. ask the question and give the ultimatum, they put one foot on the bed. Yes. Oh, man. So I think it was Tifa goes first and says, what did your assistants find out? And if you don't tell me, I'm going to chop it off. Hmm. I wonder what they mean by it. What's it, Ira? <laughs> uh-huh. But Don reveals an answer to this question. And first of all, he's obviously made it clear that if he cooperates, he's going to be killed. You know, all the standard mob boss Don stuff that comes. Right. Uh, but he says, I was looking for the gun arm man. I was ordered to. All right. Okay. We know a man with a gun arm. And, uh, you know, uh, Cloud presses for some more information, says, who told you to do this? If you don't tell me, I'm going to rip it off. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And then he says, Heidegger of Shinra, head of peace preservation. Now that's a title. Head of peace preservation. Does that sound to you like it's a sort of a population control? Yeah. Uh, not like in how many babies you can have, but controlling the populace, keeping them peaceful. Yeah, it's it's the first time we've heard this name, Heidegger, and he'll become 
a bigger player throughout the story, shares a name with German philosopher Martin Heidegger, who had some really interesting ideas, but also ended up going full Nazi later in life. And yeah. uh, so there are some purposeful parallels there. And yeah, it's very 1984 to put the word peace in his title, but I think you're right. There's even a way to read that. Like, well, I am preserving the peace by controlling the population. Right. Yeah. Peace through violence. And so Tifa finally says, okay, so what is the plan? If you don't tell me, I'm going to smash it. Ah, yuck. Chop it off, rip it off, and smash it were his options, I guess. I guess so. And this is when it is actually, of all people, Don Corneo who reveals the conspiracy that Shinra intends to break the supports, the pillars that hold up the plate, to infiltrate Avalanche, and to crush all of Sector 7 by dropping the plate above down onto it. That is a heck of a way to get rid of your insurgency problem by smashing them with a a giant city-sized plate them and everyone around them and everyone above them for that matter so Tifa's response is of course let's go and stop that from happening but before you can run out of there Don Corneille asks one quick question Why do you think I would share my plan? You're given the option between you've given up on life, you're clueless, or you're sure you'll win. That is the correct answer, because he's (laughs) sure he'll win, because there's a trapdoor. It's a (laughs) trapdoor. Lots of traps in this game. Yeah. And they fall through, but it was a pretty unthorough trap. (laughs) (laughs) Because our group is pretty much just dumped down into a sewer system that it's relatively easy to get out of. Sure, there's no, this isn't the Rancor Pit, right? It's not Luke Skywalker having to fight off uh, a giant monster. Right. But before we see that, we get this cut to the boardroom, or the headroom, the main guy, the big head honcho guy room, at Shinra Tower HQ. And we see the character whose name we just heard, Heidegger, wearing greens and reds and military garb, large man with a great big black beard. And he's a bit cartoonish villain in this too. He's got, you know, the gyahaha laugh. Right. Yep. And, you know, they're kind of confirming for us here, this is the plan. He says, the Turks are going to carry this out. And then we meet another character in a blue suit, a man named Reeve. Reeve! Oh, Reeve! Uh, How how deep do we want to get on Reeve right this moment? Let's not. (laughs) Right, so uh, there's a lot more going on with this character of Reeve. We're not going to get into it right now, but, you know, pay attention to what he says versus what some of the other folks in this meeting are saying. For now, he serves in this conversation as maybe a potential sign that Shinra isn't just all straight up evil dudes because he's making the counter argument. And he's not really saying 
hey, we shouldn't kill a bunch of innocent people. What he says is, are we really going to do this? Avalanche isn't that big of a group. Right. Which is almost a, sometimes when you want somebody to do something or not do something, you don't necessarily give them the real reason you don't want them to do something or do something. You, 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 give you them try the to appeal. You think they'll believe, yeah. Right, yeah. So Shinra just responds with the classic authoritarian response just, you want out? <laughs> you know. Like and there's probably gonna... only one way to get out. Yeah. And Reeves says, no, 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 hey, look. I'm just trying to make sure we understand the plan. I'm the head of urban development. Little exposition through dialogue. I run Midgar. I need to get this. I need to be involved. But Heidegger tells him to shove it. And Reeve mentions that the mayor is against it. So clearly there have been conversations going on about this for a while. Hang on. There's a mayor? Yeah. (laughs) This is the first time we've... Got a hint that there is theoretically some political structure, but of course it's undercut right away. Heidegger says, still call that a mayor? Talks about him feeding his face and sitting in some office, and that's a little bit of foreshadowing as well. But yeah, it's very clear that the head of the energy company cares not what the mayor thinks. And, you know, Shinra does the old put his... Hand on the shoulder. Why don't you take a couple of days off, Reeve? You've been working hard. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he he reveals, of course, the final part of the plan, which isn't just to wipe out Sector 7, but to report that Avalanche was responsible, thereby also winning a kind of information propaganda war. Uh, This is what's known as a false flag operation. And again, as... Uh, pretty common in a lot of dystopian stories. Alan Moore is very fond of them. In Watchmen and V for Vendetta, there are terrorist attacks that are carried out by their own government on the people in order to impose a certain kind of control over them. And that's pretty much exactly what's going on here. So... Back with our heroes who work their way quickly through the sewer and up into an area we've heard about before, the train graveyard. It's very clear that that's what it is because there's a bunch of derailed and broken down trains hanging out. (laughs) Um, It's funny that I think these two areas, you know, lived on and, and their legacy is far bigger than they are because, at least in these original moments, it's just a couple of screens. It's literally literally two screens for both of them. And they're large in scope and great to look at. And the characters are very small moving across them. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, not much happens here. They just sort of move through. There's a quick bit of dialogue in the train graveyard section where Cloud just says one more time, Aerith, I'm sorry I got you mixed up in all of this. And before he's given a chance to even say it one more time, Eric just says, do not tell me to go home. Yeah. And he doesn't. And I I don't think he ever will again. And then they arrive back into the edge of Sector 7 at the pillar. And there's no time to waste. It's going down. Everything is happening Immediately, this is an extremely intense 
moment where the second you arrive, you hear gunfire, you look up, giant pillar, Barrett's firing his gun away, and Wedge, from all the way at the top, comes falling, crashing down from an impossibly high place. Crashes in front of you. Cloud runs over to check on him. Wedge, you know. And he says, oh, you remembered my name. I'm sorry I wasn't any help. Oh, Wedge. Uh, and then Tifa and Cloud both give Aerith important tasks. Cloud asks Aerith to watch over Wedge, and Tifa asks her to go and grab Marlene and get her out of Sector 7. Right. So this is also a a bit of a gameplay trick because you're going to need a a party of three at the top to be Tifa, Barrett, and Cloud for storyline reasons, and you need Aerith to be removed for storyline reasons. But I like that these are two very reasonable things. Like, Aerith as a caretaker, as someone who's always worried more about others than she is about herself, will come to find out how much more. Right. That she would take care of Wedge and go get Marlene while the others would race to the top to fight actually makes perfect sense. As you head up the steps, the next member of Avalanche that you see is Biggs in a tough spot, hanging over the rail of the steps. And he'll ask Cloud, do you still not care what happens to the planet? Cool. Yeah. All right. And you're given the chance to either give Cloud's catchphrase and say, nope, not interested, which is what he said the first time he was asked about the planet by Barrett. Or you can change the subject and say, you're wounded. You can't give him the chance to say he cares about the planet yet, but... Right. Well, if, if nothing else, like, you know, we're going to take care of this right now. Because right. right now you're more important, which I, I really dig as a as an answer to that question. Right. And so that is the canon answer that I will go with here, though I did find out both ways because I ran through this twice. So if you say, if you change the subject, say you're wounded, he just says, thanks, Cloud. Don't worry about me. Go help Barrett. If you say no, not interested, he just kind of laughs and says, man, you haven't changed a bit. You continue up the stairs, a spiraling staircase up this pillar, and you find Jesse, as you had in the first bombing mission, she's stuck, her legs are stuck in the steps, she's clearly been through hell, and she says, Cloud, I'm glad I could talk with you one last time. Yeah. And again, you're given a choice. Either don't say last, or is that so? <laughs> Is he trying to be smooth there with the, is that so? That was my interpretation. So if you give that one, she'll respond, ha, cool as usual, ex-soldier. I always liked that in you. So I do think it's taken as this little playful, flirty last moment between the two of them if you chose to make it that. Right. Okay. On the other hand... If you say, don't say last, it's a much more somber and reflective moment where she says, it's all right, because of our actions, many people died. This is probably our punishment. Oof. Yeah. That's that's a little bit like saying, though, that if you just do what the bully says, nobody will get hurt. 
Yeah, and you know, I, I don't know that the story necessarily is adopting that position that Avalanche deserved to die for their bombing run, but it is maybe saying, hey, look, sometimes violence begets violence. Sure. And, you know, on some level, did they have it coming to... Sure, surely not this. Did they have this coming to right. them? No way. Because it's not just Avalanche, it's everybody around Avalanche, it's everybody in Sector 7. Right. Uh, yeah, and there's a, another conversation about culpability that comes up a little bit later, but before you have time to process that, you make your way to the very top of the pillar, where Barrett is doing his best to fend off Shinra. He actually has this great moment of dialogue where, again, it's a pragmatic reason to bring video game mechanics into it, and he reminds you to equip before they attack in full. <laughs> sure. That's good, because you've got to basically take the stuff that you had on Aerith off of her and give it to Barrett. Right. <laughs> um, so you do so. A helicopter arrives and drops off Reno of the Turks to set the bomb that's supposed to destroy the pillar. And he quotes Looney Tunes in this moment. Of all things, when he sets the bomb, he says, that's all, folks. Huh. Okay. Yeah, just, you know, maybe a little bit of Kefka, too. Just a horrible joke at the worst possible time. But this is where, in the original, you have your first battle with Reno. I had forgotten about his special attack where he puts a pyramid over each one of the characters and you have to attack your own party member to get the magical pyramid off of them. If you don't, all three will be encased in it and you lose. Yeah. But other than that, it's a relatively easy battle with Reno, but it doesn't matter because he's already set the bomb. You don't really win it so much as he runs away and jumps off the edge to who knows where. Tifa and Cloud have this whole panicked back and forth where they can't figure out to disarm the bomb, which made me think, oh, your bombs and monitors person is dying on the stairwell. Jesse. Bombs and monitors. Then Cloud mentions that it's not a normal time bomb, at which point a helicopter arrives and we meet another Turk, Tseng, who we'll come later to learn is the head of the Turks this scary group of spy people. And it's difficult to see at first because she's kind of laid out, but if you're paying close attention, you can tell as the player that Aerith is there, though it becomes clear in a moment that the characters can't really see her as well. Right. But he mentions again they're going to have a hard time disarming the bomb because it's going to blow up the second that it's touched. And, you know, Tifa is just reduced to begging at this point just please stop but then he mentions that only a Shinra executive can disarm the emergency plate release system and it's just like man the the power of this private energy corporation it also suggested to me that this was a built in feature that they foresaw this may need to happen someday yeah, that you might have to take this apart or, yeah, just let the whole thing fall. So Barrett starts to fire at the helicopter, at which point Sang pulls up Aerith and he stops and, you know, the whole crew is going, oh, hey, that's our friend. 
Tseng goes, oh, so you know each other. Cloud wants to know why they're kidnapping her, and we get a new word into the conversation. Tseng says, our or, I don't know why he's explaining this. Mm -hmm. Thanks, mm -hmm. though. It's for us, uh, but yeah. Yeah. He says, our orders were to find and catch the last remaining ancient. And yeah. it has taken us a long time. So this is our, we've seen this in Final Fantasy before, right? In Final Fantasy 1, there are the Lufinians, right, who, who created the prophecy however long ago and created the, uh, the airship that our party eventually uses. In Final Fantasy 4, it's the Lunarians, right? In Final Fantasy 6, that's the, the War of the Magi was a thousand years ago. So we've had these ancient civilizations uh, before, and so it's not necessary... Yeah, Xanarkin in, in Final Fantasy X. So it's not really surprising that there would have been an ancient race uh, that existed on this planet or somewhere near this planet or has some contact with this planet at some point. And and this is our our first mention of it in this game. And apparently, not unlike Terra, Aerith is is a member of this other race of beings. Yeah, in this moment, she goes from cute, Feisty, adventurous, fun, not scared of anything, wants to talk a lot about boys, person to, oh yeah, also maybe the key figure in all of this. And she's still all of those other things as well. She's, and in fact, it, it, very important to her that she be all of those things, maybe first and foremost. But yeah, she is also our mystic as it were. Um, and even in this moment, while she's being kidnapped and these terrible things are going on and people are dying all around, she yells out, Tifa, don't worry. She's all right. Caring well done, more Earth. about someone <laughs> else than herself. Yeah. Uh, and then she gets slapped in the face real hard by Tsang. Doesn't let her finish that thought. That really, I mean, I'm already primed not to like Singh because he's the head of the Turks and he worked for the Shinra Energy Corporation, but that, that to me is unforgivable. Pretty despicable and memorable act, even inside of everything else that's going on. It's kind of like it, he's committing sins of the smallest and largest order at the same time, right? They're killing all right. of these people, but he's also being extraordinarily disrespectful to this person and in that way, sort of an entire race of people if she's the last remaining. And so, yeah. Aerith, again, though, more worried about them, says, hurry and get out of here. Sang taunts them a little bit, says, can you escape in time? We get another brief FMV where the pillar above, it go boom. Yeah. Big, fiery explosion. You were mentioning some um, convenience earlier. Well, here we've got a big one. Uh, Barrett just finds a wire hanging from the scaffoldings above that sort of conveniently, uh, we'll see in a moment, we'll swing them into the next sector. But he grabs onto the wire. I love this moment, too, where Tifa and Cloud grab onto Barrett. Climb yeah. up on him. He's the Gives papa. Sense of his, yeah, he's the papa. He's the big guy. He's the leader here. 
Um, and he is literally going to carry his comrades out of this situation. And then it all happens very fast. The pillar explodes. The plate begins to fall. We get a quick shot inside of someone's house. We see a news report on a television that goes fuzzy. And then we get this shot from the below, from ground level. And people turn and look up as the structure that had been above them, preventing them from seeing the sky all this time, drops down and smothers them all to death. next shot, we see our heroes just swinging out of the way, explosions in the background as they narrowly avoid their own death. And then we get one last shot overhead of one of the nine plates having fallen down. And as we see the dust coming up, we get this pan out just like the very beginning of the game. But this time we go inside Shinra Tower, inside a window, over the shoulder of the president, watching from high up in his ivory tower. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. You're also on Patreon. This podcast is free to listen to either on archive.org or on Patreon, but if you want to download it and make sure that you can stream each episode one after another, you can do that for as little as $1 a month. You just get a little embed code. You can put it right in there. It's really easy to do. So join us next time when we infiltrate Shinra Tower, meet a new remarkably red friend, and walk the trail of blood. <laughs>